0: Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is brilliant thoughts with success people, editor, Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships and communication shape business success. And now here he is Tristan Almada.
1: Great leaders focus on long-term results they understand the huge potential for success when attracting the best talent and then empowering them to perform now from personal experience that empowerment is really a demonstration of the leader's trust and where there's trust we know that relationships grow and that's why i love today's guest he's written a book that's both eye-opening and very enjoyable to read A lot of great storytelling here. He uses that storytelling to help leaders understand how to use their influence to connect with people at that level that we can then help people change, build strong relationships and eventually grow businesses. Join me on this one. You're going to love it. Adam Bonelli. Welcome back to another episode of Success Magazine's podcast brilliant thoughts. I'm your host Tristan and I've got with me Adam Bandelli. Is that how you pronounce it? Yep, Adam Bandeli. you got it. Awesome, buddy. And you just wrote a great great book. I just finished reading it 2 days Excellent. ago. Relational Intelligence. And I was digging into the title and I'm like relational almost like emotional intelligence, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 And and I'm thinking I'm like is it going to be along those lines and I was I was very pleasantly surprised. The book was was great. It flowed really well. And the storytelling on your part, dude, on point. So (laughs) congrats on an amazing book, man. And thank you for being on.
0: Yeah, no, my pleasure. All
1: right. The very first thing that came to mind when when I was reading this book was because our audience is is business oriented, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, that whole mix. I'm thinking in, in a professional world. I think it's really important to approach relationships the way that you outlined yeah. and we'll go, we'll go into it. But the very first question I have, it's actually from a sentence you have like half, a little bit over halfway through the book. Yeah. You said in a professional world, influence is directly connected to leadership. And I couldn't shake that. And I was like, yeah, Dude, that is, that's so true. I mean, especially in a world where it's all about social media and perception yeah. Yeah. and all that. So can you expand on what you meant by influence is directly connected to leadership?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great place to start for our conversation today. So when you think about it, people define influence in different ways. Um, We define influence as the ability to have a positive and meaningful impact on the lives of others. So every leader is in a position where they're overseeing teams or individuals, and it's really about having the ability to bring out the best in your team members, bring out the best in your folks. It's helping people become the best versions of themselves. Mm -hmm. So to be an effective leader, you have to influence. Um, Some of the clients that we work with, we'll probably get into more of what we do at the firm here in a little bit, but some of the best leaders that I work with empower their people. They bring people who are subject matter experts, or great in a specific skill or area, and they bring them in and they empower them and give them the autonomy to perform. And so Mm -hmm. I think when you think about influence, it's really about helping people figure out what their kind of secret sauce of their superhero power is and then really unleashing them to go forward and perform.
1: I like that, man. I like that. It's, it's like you said, I'm going to lead you into this because you said influential versus manipulative. And yeah. then you, brought, you brought up Machiavelli, you brought up all that whole you, you did your whole, what was that, dissertation? I did my
0: master's thesis on Machiavellians and emotional intelligence. And then I did my dissertation on relational intelligence.
1: Dude. I, and, and then your book now, obviously, Relational Intelligence, yeah, which makes yeah. total sense, by the way. So tell me about this influential versus manipulative, because in the world that we live in, I still see both. I, I see yeah, like yeah. some people are like, you know, I have to trick these people into like doing what I yeah, want them to yeah, do. Right. Yeah. So tell me about that.
0: Yeah. So it goes back to if we first pull back and we think about how do you define relational intelligence versus emotional intelligence? Because it's grounded in that. So. We define relational intelligence as the ability to successfully connect with people and build strong, long-lasting relationships. Um, EQ, we define as the ability to understand your emotions, the emotions of others, or how to manage emotions effectively. So when you think about EQ, it can be used for good or negative purposes. You can use emotions to elicit inspiration in others, motivate others but you can also use emotions to manipulate people. You can use emotions to trigger things like fear or anxiety, or do you have to get things done? Um, What I found when we were doing my master's work was that Machiavellians are self-serving. They're not inherently bad people like narcissists, but they have a means to an end mentality in terms of how they view people. And so what we found in the research was that Machiavellian leaders are really good at getting short term goals done, maybe for a quarter or for six months, a leader can get the most out of their people if they're Mm -hmm. being more self serving, um, but that's not going to work in the long term. Relationally intelligent leaders, on the other hand, because the focus is on building strong long-term relationships, the idea of intentionality and authenticity is there. Mm-hmm. You can't fake relational intelligence. You can't use it for negative purposes because you want to be bringing out the best in your people. So that's kind of the difference how EQ and RA are tied to this, but also kind of the Machiavellian leader versus the influential or inspirational leader.
1: I like that, man. And you know who I kept on thinking of? Um, sorry, I was... I don't know why I didn't think about this when I was reading your book, but you just said EQ, and I'm like, okay, emotional intelligence, and then you're like RI, and I'm like, hey, how come I didn't think to to shorten <laughs> relational <laughs> intelligence while yeah. I was reading? That's so I just I just shortened it. All right, yeah. so I was thinking of Steve Jobs, and just yeah, because yeah. we yeah. we've been so privy to knowing his whole life, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, just the change in in how he treated people. I kept on thinking. Right. Machiavelli over slowly, very slowly into more relational.
0: Yeah. 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 I would even borderline and say he was a narcissist to a certain extent. I mean, a brilliant man, the iPhone, the iPad, the things we use today, we'll use for decades to come. And so he was ahead of his time in doing that. But when you look at his life, and I'm glad you brought him up as an example, I mean, he was ousted from Apple in the 80s because of his poor leadership style fighting with people, putting people down. It even, spilled. we're going to talk about it a little bit, probably the personal side of it, romantic relationships, marriage, but his family relationships were a disaster. His daughters, I mean, he didn't speak to his daughter for 30 years. And so to your point, I think as he evolved and when he came back into Apple in the 90s and he started with the dev- devices around iPhone and stuff, I think he evolved a little bit to know. I think, you know, that famous speech he gave at Stanford and he really talked about how you can impact people in a positive way. If you Google it, it's one of the most famous speeches out there, uh, commencement speech but he talked about his journey and he talked about what leadership looks like and how to have an impact on people and that was after going through his life and being more self-serving early on to being more building relationships and getting things done through others
1: dude that that's it that's it good point on the narcissistic part i didn't i didn't apply that earlier in my mind dude i'm looking at your background okay and and for those of you listening and not watching adam's got this amazing background with shoes and all, I can see
0: <laughs>
1: are a whole bunch of Jordan yeah. shoes, and I remember yeah. wearing the Jordan shoes that have the red sole, yeah. and the black yeah. top,
0: when yeah. I was a kid. Yeah. yeah, tell me about this. I want to know what's up with yeah. The it's really. So these are the Jordan 11s. These are the Jordans that he came back after the baseball spin in 1994. It was the first shoe he came out when he wore the number 45. Um, one of the shoes back here have 45 on it. It's collector items. So all the ones on the walls, are collector items. Um, but I grew up in the 80s, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan. I was a point guard in high school and college basketball. And so for me, that was my first foray into leadership what does a great leader look like from someone like a Michael Jordan on into now, you look at Kobe Bryant and what he did in his career. You look at a LeBron James or a Steph Curry. So I was always fascinated coming from a sports background on what makes a great leader. How do they motivate? How do they galvanize others? How does it play into teamwork? Um, So that was really what led me down the path to becoming an organizational psychologist and leadership advisor.
1: Interesting, man. I I think that just that whole whole idea behind your shoe collection just in my mind is saying influential versus manipulative, right? Yeah, that's yeah, like, oh, yeah. huh, very interesting. All right, let's let's go into this because your book is outlined. I thought into two two main sections. One yeah. is the beginning section, which is establishing rapport, understanding others, embracing individual differences, developing trust, and cultivating influence. And that's part one. That's and of those,
0: that's the model. That's the framework. Yep. That's
1: the yeah. That's what you base everything on, which I thought was great. By the way, dude, I was like, "Damn, this is this is well thought out." I mean, you spent years doing this. By the way, it's just
0: yeah, yeah, for me. Yeah. For me, it was
1: just a, you know a few days of reading, but yeah, well, it was
0: fascinating for me on the journey. So, like everything started. I picked up Daniel Goleman's book in 1995, Emotional Intelligence: Why It Matters More Than EQ, And I was a freshman in college. And that really sparked for me. I was fascinated by it. there's something beyond IQ that can sell you if someone's successful, um, and that started me down the road of understanding and unpacking what EQ is. And then going and doing my master's thesis. When I started, I did my dissertation in 2006, so almost 20 years ago. Um, I knew that there were other skills that great leaders practice beyond just emotions, things like developing trust, things like embracing diversity. And so I built the framework. There were the the five buckets that are in my model um the origins come back 2006 2007 in my dissertation i sat it on a shelf usually graduate students you want to get your dissertations done as quickly as you can and put it aside and move on with your life and so i put it on the shelf but i practiced these five skills personally and professionally for the last 15 20 years refining honing them um applying them with our clients and the coaching and leadership work we do and then in my personal life with my family with my friends and my relationships and so um you know then it's really I think things happen for a reason like the book is coming out now at a point in time where we're coming out of the pandemic I just had COVID last week so I can appreciate people who had COVID and went through that um but we're coming out now we've been socially isolated we've been communicating like this Tristan for two years over zoom where I, I can't physically make eye contact eye contact with you body language all the things that are part of establishing a rapport that are not there now we've lost the art of human face-to-face connection so you tie that in with social justice in 2020 and what it means to build inclusive cultures now. And then you look at the great resignation and why people are leaving the generational differences, millennials versus Gen Z versus Xers and baby boomers. Now is the time I think was to bring a book like this out that's going to have an impact on a lot of people's lives.
1: Very true. I love that. Yeah, you could totally see how we can apply these. And this is, and look, the base, the basis of of how we can better understand relational intelligence those five things then you go into for those of you listening and then he goes into how to apply those to family friends business and romantic and i want to start with saying how can how can people miss that if they invest time to make others feel comfortable they get more accepted how is it that people miss that completely
0: Oh, I think there's, so there's tendencies that we have as people. I think people, first off, like to talk more than they listen. And so a lot of times people want to get their points of view across business or professional. You look, we'll look at dating. You're meeting someone. I think men more than women, you want to say what you do. Either I'm physically fit and I'm healthy, or I make money, or I drive a fancy car. So people are always trying to, I don't want to say prove themselves, but they want to show what they have versus let me take a step back and ask questions and understand the person sitting on the other side of the table, whether Mm -hmm. that's a colleague, a manager, or girlfriend or boyfriend or partner, um, so I think that's the first big thing. People like to talk more than they like to listen. I think another foundational piece is that most people don't think with intentionality around relationships. Well, I just met my friends because we were drinking buddies or in the same fraternity or sorority in college, or I'm stuck with this team of people I'm working with, so I'm kind of stuck with they am. Or if you're a new leader and you inherit a team, you're inheriting a certain set of folks. So I think people... By trial, by error, they just get into relationships, whatever those relationships might be, and they don't think intentionally about how can I build a strong connection with this person? How can I help them become better versions of themselves? How can we develop really strong trust so we can work collectively more effectively? Um, I think a lot of it is that, the lack of intentionality. And then the most important piece, I think, Tristan, is this authenticity. I think a lot of people, we all wear masks to a certain degree. We have our mask with our family, we have our mask with our colleagues, we have our mask with our church or place of worship. Like we all have the mask that we wear. And so it was, for me, it was liberating. My journey really on kind of being authentic started about two and a half, three years ago when I was like, holy shit, I can be honest with my CEO client, just like I am with my wife but just in a different context, but the Adam who has the shoes behind his wall, like there was a period in time, I didn't even want to put my zoom on with the shoes. Cause I was like, I don't want my clients to think I'm crazy. And yeah. so like, you know, but once you can embrace all aspects of yourself, the good, bad, and the ugly, I think the authenticity is what makes relationships work.
1: That's so true, man. I agree. I, I connected really well with that part. When you're like, I finally decided to tell you're like, I finally decided to tell people just who I am. And and I, I was surprised. You said how much more I grew from there with yeah. my clients.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
1: that was really good. And you also mentioned that compassion is tough when you think you're right. And I yeah. was, dude, I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> shake, yeah. I couldn't shake the fact that that's the world we live in, where it's like, what happened to our compassion?
0: Yeah, yeah. And we live in an instant gratification culture now. Social media, people have attention spans of fifteen to twenty seconds. So um, I think it was interesting, though, empathy and compassion, at least in a business context became much more important in the pandemic because you had people who were in their 30s and 40s who maybe had infants or young kids at home, they're homeschooling. You had other people who had elderly parents who were 20, 30 years older than them. Now there was the fear, I can't go visit my grandmother or my mother or father for giving them COVID. So the degree of leaders and people who run companies, employers having to be more empathetic towards their people, I think that's a big shift. At least we've seen in the leadership literature and the leadership practice that that's become more important the last few years.
1: Mm, i like that the empathy part right yeah interesting very interesting now when you when you take time to learn about others yeah you you obviously people feel that right the emotional the emotional aspect of that how how is it that we can practice that more and how do we start becoming aware of that because some people live their whole lives and just
0: they talk talk
1: over everybody man it's like
0: yeah yeah Yeah. so this really This really ties into the second skill of the model, understanding others. And so we define that Tristan as the ability to be intentional about putting in the time and effort needed to get to know another person on a deep level. And so practically there's four things you can do to really understand others and build that initial connection. I think one, we talked about EQ already. This is where it plays into relational intelligence you have to have self-awareness about your emotions and a social awareness about the emotions of others and how to manage emotions effectively. You don't want to get frustrated with someone or angry or resentful, bitterness, you don't want that to show. So having good EQ skills is important. We touched on this, the second piece, active listening. Are you listening to truly hear or are you listening and getting ready what you're gonna say in your mind before the person even finishes what they're saying? Um, things like interrupting, you give people a chance to space and to speak. The other piece that really unlocks it here is curiosity and inquisitiveness. Do you come and ask questions? Do you probe and go deeper than just, hey, what's the weather like in California today? Well, you know maybe there's other things going on in Tristan's life that he wants to talk about, let's ask some questions about that. And then I think we touched on already, the fourth piece is empathy. Can you put yourself in another person's shoes? Um, understanding hours doesn't happen overnight. It's a never evolving process. We, uh, I, I was joking with a client this morning, we were doing an assessment for one of our clients and the executive was, she was telling me about how, like, I hate getting on the phone and just shooting the shit about, you know, how's your kids doing, how this, or that it feels fake and superficial. And I was like, well, do you take time really to understand and know your people where it's not just like, do you even know your kid, your employees' names of the kids? Like, do you take time to know those things, small details that people forget, yes. but it's important.
1: And you know, on, on that note, it's interesting because I was going through, it's like, what, what what have I done that was terrible and sucked or that I can learn yeah, from as like I'm that. reading this, right? And like, oh, yeah. I suck at that. I'm like, yeah. And then <laughs> and then I thought, well, there has to be something that I'm kind of okay at, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I started thinking that sometimes in these higher higher conversations that I have with like CEOs, executives, yeah, you connect quicker the moment they feel like you're actually trying to help them
0: yeah 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 yeah. and
1: I I couldn't shake that because understanding others right number two was so key in that because now now I'm not putting myself first it's like I'm I'm putting I'm putting their needs first and I'm saying hey how do I fit in but first how do I help you with the skills that I have let me ask a question
0: That's so fascinating. There's a quote from Andrew Carnegie. You can learn more and you can build stronger relationships with people by asking questions and getting to know them in two months than you can get people knowing about you in two years. And it's a fascinating thing, like just asking questions like that. It's just a a fascinating way to look at it. That was in his famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence. Ah. But that really stuck with me when I was doing the research for the book. Just ask a question, learn about someone, You'll, you'll, build a relationship quicker than trying to get them to know what you're great at or what you do or who you are.
1: That's so good, man. I love that one. All right. Neuro-linguistic programming.
0: Yeah.
1: What's your take on it? Because I hear, I hear both sides. Cause I, I get to interview a lot of different people. I'm like, yeah. they're like, eh, and some are like, no, no, this is the way. What's your take on this?
0: Like when it comes to affirmations and kind of how you speak to yourself?
1: Uh, the neuro-linguistic, yeah, and, and and the ability to use it to be able to connect with people by paying attention to certain cues, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that goes back to establishing rapport. And this is really about creating an initial positive connection with people. So there's a number of things from a neuro-linguistic standpoint around self-perceptions. How do you view yourself? In the book I talk about in the chapter on trust, know thyself. Do you know your values? Do you know your strengths? Do you know your blind spots? Um, Can you speak to those things articulately? Have you even done the time to do some research? Like I was telling one of my colleagues, they asked, you know, how did you write two books in two years? And I said, for me, it was journaling. The simple activity of waking up in the morning and just journaling and that kind of freed up writer's block for me and it gave me a sense of just myself wake up in the morning and just what's my mood, putting it down on paper, what are my feelings, what am I grateful for, what am I anxious for that day. Um, So journaling was a big helpful thing so self perceptions are big Um, when it comes to neuro linguistics as well the perceptions that you have of, of others. Um, good perceptions about people or the stereotypes, negative things that we may think, even though stereotypes are not prevalent as much as they are outwardly or overtly, we still have them underlyingly impacting how we think and behave. And so for people to really connect with others, you have to look past the way you were raised or what you were told about black people or Asian people or white people or gay people or straight people. You have to be able to say, okay, whoever I'm interacting with is a unique individual. They're not in this category. And if you can look past the categories to get to know the person that really gets a good connection, but then it goes deeper to some of the things that we talked about earlier on behaviorally, like making a good first impression, um, eye contact, verbal, nonverbal behavior, body gestures, like the way that you use your body when you're communicating with someone, leaning into a conversation, the use of humor to lighten things when appropriate, like all those things play into when you're initially connecting with people.
1: Uh, dude, those are all amazing pieces. But how do we shake the fact that some of us, well, all of us, are to some extent a product of our environment? And if we don't, and if we don't go outside of our environment,
0: yeah, you don't learn it. Yeah. How
1: do we? How do we yeah. knock out racism if we don't go want to go and mingle with other people?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I, again, it goes back to we talked about the chapter on family. Um, I can tell from my personal life experiences. So I, I come from a family where mother and father. My father's Muslim. My mother's Christian. Um, They got divorced when I was young over religion. Um, But I've been exposed to Islam and Christianity for my whole life. Um, I have some aunts and uncles who were Jewish. So just from a faith and spirituality standpoint, I had that growing up. There were weekends where I was with my father in the mosque and then there are weekends where I was with my mother in the church. And so for me, it just gave me a broad understanding that people think and value and believe in different things. And that's okay. You can still embrace their humanity, even though they wear a hijab, or even though they wear a cross, or whatever the case may be. Um, A number of the colleagues that work in my firm are gay. And i found that gay or lesbian consultants are more empathetic. They can connect with people easily. And so if you can look past the lens of sexual orientation, that's another huge factor there. So race, ethnicity, another piece. I mean, I have colleagues on my team who are Black, who are Asian, who are Hispanic. And when we talk about diversity as a firm, it's not just a topic we talk about. I've built a firm with people who are diverse because I think that creates diversity of thought, which really enriches colleagues and conversations and stuff. So, I, I, you know, again, I was benefited by the luck of having this exposure early on. But I would say to anyone in your audience, if you came up and you grew up in a certain framework or mentality, like getting out there, seeing the world. I studied abroad in London for a year in college, and that's transformed my whole life of what Europeans are like, how Italians are different from Germans, different from people from the UK or Scotland. So, I mean, all these things matter, but your ability to be exposed to as broad of an array of people as you can, and the earlier in life you can do that, I think it helps with some of the stereotypes or the prejudices or the way that people act and behave.
1: Okay, good answer. All right, now I'm going to go back a little bit, yeah. to, Because you mentioned something about self-perception a few minutes ago,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And I thought, can can we have a self-perception that's incorrect, you know, of, of ourselves? Yeah, obviously. Can we, or is that is that something that you thought of deeper, or no?
0: Um. So let, let's take a, an example for for example. So competitiveness. Um, if you're growing up and you played sports, especially more individual sports and team sports, you look at track and field, or you look at golf or tennis, um, part of your identity may have been, I have to win at all costs and I Mm -hmm. have to be the best at what I do. Then you get someone who's finished their athletic career, high school or college, and they go into the world of work. And now you're on a team with people who have to get things done collectively. Um, you may be competitive with your colleagues, but that's not going to get you far. And so how can you reprogram your thinking that um, winning is no longer me coming out on top? Winning can be me being the best version of myself. Winning can be our team winning. I'm always fascinated when I coach leaders, the language. I'm a big, strong proponent of language and the words that we use. I'll interview an executive and talk about how they get things done in their organization. If they use things like, I did this, I accomplished that. i not using the word we, my team did this, we did that. It speaks very quickly to kind of their views or their biases of how they see things. So competitiveness is an example, but you can take that with any type of word or view that it starts early on. And unless you're challenged, um, a lot of times it's kind of the, you know, hit rock bottom or places where you have to learn that if I don't change my behavior or my approach, It's going to impact the way that I do business or make money or work with others.
1: Okay, good. So yes, then it can be. And the more people you meet, it sounds like the less likely you will have a false perception of yourself because, all right, I like that. Great answer. Now you bring up the VAC model, V-A-K, and how it affects in connecting with people. Can you expand on that so, so our listeners can understand that?
0: Yeah, so I mean, there's different components. There's the visual aspects of actually how you interact with people that we talked about that already with the eye contact, the body language. There's the affective or emotional component of it. So empathy ties a lot to that. And then there's a lot tied to the competence or the cognitive side, like thinking through and solving problems together. It's why we talk a lot about this idea of diversity of thought. Like you wanna be interacting and working with people who think differently than you. Some of the best leaders that I work with They surround themselves with people who are strong where they have weaknesses or development opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um, I look at my firm, for example, I have people on my team. We do three things at our firm we do leadership assessment interviews, we call it senior executive selection. Mm -hmm. We do leadership development and coaching, and then we do executive education and training. I've brought brought an expert in, in each of those three swim lanes that knows those things better than me. So take the assessment piece. I have a gentleman, he's an Asian gentleman. Um, amazingly he called himself a data scientist slash psychologist, but he knows how to build assessments and build tests. I'm sure you've taken the Myers Briggs or the Enneagram. We're building our own relational intelligence test right now. So in six months and I'll be able to give you the book. And so you'll say, hey, what's my relational intelligence? And we'll be able to give you assessment to say where you stand on it today. And then I have another woman, a Hispanic woman, who leads our executive education and training practice. She has an expertise that I don't. She spent 15, 20 years in HR, in a learning curriculum design space. So now we'll be able to give you the book. You can read an idea we will tell you and give you an assessment. And then we have a two day immersive experience that we have, that's a training and education. You get to learn these five skills mm-hmm. and practice them with your colleagues. So how you can develop trust and be vulnerable and be able to embrace diversity. So I've built a firm with people who are diverse from different backgrounds, but also have areas of expertise where I don't. You know, I'm good at doing a little bit of each of these things, but I'm not an expert when it comes to statistics and analytics. I'm not an expert when it comes to training, but I surround myself with people who are and then empower them to perform.
1: Sounds like that's the way we should run a company, man. Yeah? I love that. That's a that's a great model to follow. Yeah. yeah. Going into then developing trust, I couldn't. I couldn't also shake the thought that if we don't trust ourselves, because you bring this yeah. up, in the book. it's not it's not yeah. me thing. It's you. Yeah. You say if you kill it, if you can't trust yourself, then how the hell are other people going to trust you? Pretty yeah, much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to, uh, here's what you said, and I'm just rephrasing it. It's twofold. You have to show up for yourself and then you have to show up for others. And that's how you start trusting yourself. And that's how others start trusting you. That was, to me, that was my big, one of the big ahas of the book. Expand on trust in that form.
0: Well, I mean, again, so let me talk about the concept and then we make it really, very real and practical for your listeners. Um, In the book, the section is called Know Thyself. Um, In order for you to build trust with other people, you have to know how you're wired. You have to know what things make you tick. You have to have an understanding of kind of your good, bad, and ugly um, before you can start to build trust with other people. I look at my own personal life. I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in my early 20s. Um, And when, at the time, I was a PhD student getting a degree in psychology. And, you know, they talk about in the medical field, bedside manner, how some doctors are not as, uh, you know, empathetic as others. And when I was diagnosed after having a manic episode, um, the doctor spent five minutes with me. Oh, you have this, you're bipolar, take these six meds and come see me again in three weeks. And I outright rejected the diagnosis. How can a psychology uh, PhD student have a mental health disorder? That's crazy. That's not possible. I mean, that was my ignorance at that point in time. Um, So I spent a decade of my life living in denial um, and, and most people who have bipolar, it's stigmatized often. Um, I think of all the mental health disorders, it's stigmatized the most. You see it dramatized on TV. Yep. Um, but I will tell you from life experience if you're not in a therapy, if you're not on meds, and I am on both now for over a decade, um, firm believer in meds help, especially if you have a chemical imbalance. Meds are important, they keep you more balanced. And therapy, I think everyone should go to therapy, not just people with mental health. It helps you to grow. But the decade that I was not on meds, I had a chaotic life. You know, there was a period of addiction. There was a period of extreme behaviors on the other end, marathon running and things like that. And so in my own life, until I truly knew myself and knew about the things that make me take, you think about famous people like Kanye West. He um, he's a great example of someone who is diagnosed, talks about it, but he doesn't help. He doesn't get on meds. He doesn't kind of have a program. And you see the things that have happened the last couple of years in his life with the divorce with Kim and some of the other things. So, um, you know, know thyself doesn't just focus on mental health. It's just know who you are as a person in general and your ability to understand that then opens the door for you to develop trust with other people. You know, we view trust or we define it in the model. It's the ability to be vulnerable and take a risk to be exposed to the actions and behaviors of others. So once you know yourself, it then becomes this concept that I talk about in the book, the bank account of trust. And are you continually sowing or nurturing into relationships? This idea of intentional generosity. Can you pour into a relationship and trust people? The great leaders that I work with, they don't demand that their people earn their trust. They extend trust first so that they're able to build into that relationship. And then again, the big thing here, we call it the five C's, the underlying aspects of trust. Um, For leaders to trust their people, vice versa, you have to be competent. Do I know Tristan's going to do a good job? Commitment. Do I know he's going to honor his commitments to me or the organization? Consistency. Is he going to show up the same way each day? Can I count on him? Character. Do you have good ethics and integrity? And then courage. Are you willing to say things that need to be said when they need to be said?
1: You know the the consistency part. That is so true, man. How how do you show up consistently so that other people can learn to trust you? Cause that's the yeah. person you're yeah. showing up as.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah.
1: Really good point. And you you mentioned it. I think you mentioned that the first the first time you realized that there was something wrong was was that the time when you were with your father you said you were signing documents for
0: yeah yeah that, <laughs> there was a whole, a whole thing with the so, tell me about yeah, that. So for, yeah so for people who have bipolar um there's two different types there's bipolar one and bipolar two i was diagnosed with bipolar two bipolar one is the um version of bipolar that they dramatize on tv where in the morning someone can be suicidal and in the evening they're running around having sex with 20 people um that is the more extreme version the type two bipolar, bipolar two, which I have, has periods of hypomania and then mild depression. So there was a period for about three or four months where I was depressed for the first time. And for people who haven't dealt with depression, um, you know, they'll say, dust it off your shoulders, just tie your bootstraps tighter, you'll be fine. Depression is a real thing. It does impact people. Sometimes you cannot get out of bed. And so for someone like me, who's type A, who was an athlete his whole life, the idea of not being able to get out of the bed and go to the gym was, was, was terrifying. Um, and so I had a three, four month period of depression, and then that spawned and turned into a three, four month period of mania, um, sleeping two hours a night, um, drinking excessively, working out four or five hours a day. I mean, extreme, extreme behaviors, that is bipolar, extreme highs and lows. And so it was during that time that I got into, you know, some financial situations with my father and purchasing a house and doing things that, you know, a a normal person who's not on the highs and lows would not have engaged in a lot of those risky behaviors. Um, And so again, it was going through all that. And then three months later, I fell into another depression where I was suicidal. Um, That was where the diagnosis took place. I was 23 at the time.
1: Wow. Wow. All right. You bring up, you bring up self-comfort and, and I'm assuming you've been through a lot of that in the process of writing this book, because I I can't imagine you not. This is amazing. How do we open up about our struggles? Is it through a journal? Like you said, you journal, is it, is it through talking to other people? Is it a combination? What, What does that look like?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, in the mental health circles, it's having your quote unquote care team, Um, so for me, I'll use my own life as an example. And again, I try anything that I write about in that book or the other books that I've written, I try to talk about things from my own experiences. I'm not going to tell you how to deal with depression because every person is different, but if I can help you with what I've gone through in my life, then I feel like that's the way that I can contribute to society or contribute to you as a person or as a leader, as a husband, as a wife. Um, so for me, um, it's been a journey as a psychologist and as an executive coach, I think every coach should have a coach. As a therapist, every therapist has a therapist. You have to go on this self-exploratory journey to really understand and know thyself. So I think that's an important piece in my framework. And I've had different therapists and advisors, spiritual advisors in different seasons of my life. Right now, I go to a therapist who is a combination of both therapy, but also spirituality, my faith is really important to me. And so there are things that I can, I can pray with my uh, counselor, or my therapist, I can talk about things that are in the Bible that relate to what I'm dealing with today. So for me, having a therapist or a coach or a life coach, having someone that you can bounce ideas off of who's not connected to your job, or is not your mother or your father and your family, I think that's important. I think it's also important to really surround yourself with the inner circle of people that you trust your spouse, uh, maybe two or three close friends or colleagues? Are there four or five people that you can be real and raw and honest with? Uh, One of my best friends for over 30 years, I talk about it in the book, there was a period where I was in my first episode of depression, where I was seriously contemplating not finishing my PhD.
1: Yeah, I remember my
0: friend and my friend came to me, we were sitting down, I remember we're down in Central Jersey at the beach, I'm a shore kid. I grew up down the shore in Jersey and we're sitting on a boardwalk, kind of feet dangling over the boardwalk. And he said, look, you will regret it the rest of your life if you don't complete it. I know it's going to be a hard thing for you. And you're going through tough time. Like you have family, you have friends, people care about you. Don't give up on your dream that you've had for a decade because you're going through a tough time. Um, And that really spoke to me about resilience and about tenacity and about stamina and fortitude. Um, and it really helped me through that period. And I've been and I was there for him ten years later, where he was engaged and the engagement broke off, and I had to help him kind of work through that piece. And what were some of the things that he did to contribute to it ending? And what were some of the things that his partner did? Um, and so we've we've had a beautiful. We've known each other since we were fourteen, and we're both in our forties now. And so thirty years—that's awesome. We've each other, and we've grown and evolved through different seasons of our life.
1: That's awesome, dude. That's an awesome relationship right there. Yeah. yeah. Talking about relationships, right? That's a great relationship. Um, all right. In, in regards to narcissism,
0: yeah,
1: I, I have a personal question here. Yeah, is it is it good or bad for leaders to be narcissistic? Like, yeah. what what do you find?
0: In my experiences, it's bad. I mean, in my experiences. I think if you're self centered, or if now here's the thing that's really from a psychological standpoint that's challenging. I don't think most narcissists set out to be and say, "I'm going to be an asshole." I think, <laughs> That's I, think true. I think, I think there's deep trauma early in life where they were, it doesn't have to be trauma, like physical sexual abuse, but there, there's some type of traumatic event that made them think that if I engage or behave in a certain way, I'm not going to feel like this again, inferiority complexes or, um, you know, something like that. So most of the narcissists that I see, and I have some of them in my family, I talk about in the book. I have some of them that I work with. Um, yep. there's an inflated sense of, uh, egotism. Um, I think pride in any aspect is a behavior that can destroy someone's life. Um, Humility is something that I practice. I've learned that over my life journey in my 20s. I was very prideful. I felt the world revolved around Adam. Um, I found out very quickly it didn't. (laughs) Um, But, you know, and for me, it was a rock bottom moment. But I feel like pride is a big thing that leads to narcissism. Um, We all need help and support from people at different seasons in our life and it's okay to ask for help. And maybe part of that was my mental health journey, but like there were times where I couldn't get out of bed and I needed a family member to help me cook a meal or help me you know, shave my head or shower me. There were things where it was like, okay, I have to be able to say I need help and it's okay to say you need help. Um, And so I think narcissistic leaders, um, because they have some type of imposter syndrome or inferiority complex, they don't wanna show weakness. They don't wanna show that they have any issues or need help and it really damages relationships. In the workplace, I mean, I work with some narcissistic leaders. I find too, I will say most of the narcissists I work with are men versus women. I found some of the best leaders I've worked with to be female senior executives. There's a degree of empathy that they have that their male counterparts don't. There's a degree of vulnerability that they create with their teams that some of their male counterparts don't. Um, But I'll give you a perfect example I talk about in the book. One of the first leaders I ever coached, um, he was a Staten Island police officer for 20 years. So you kind of know what it's like just being a police officer and then being from Staten Island, and all the stereotypes associated with that. Um, retired, got his pension and then went into retail. Um, and he led with an iron fist. It was his way or the highway. Um, he always had to be right. And that got him so far in his journey in, as a retail leader. But when he was overseeing a district and had 13 or 14 stores reporting into him, it was an electronics retailer. Um, he was scaring his people. People feared working for him. And it got to the point where his manager brought me in and said, hey, listen, if he doesn't change, we're going to demote him or fire him. And so there was a come to Jesus, come to God moment where I said, listen, Um, and it was funny at the time. It was one of my first coaching engagements ever. So I'm a 26-year-old kid, and this guy was 47 years old. I remember going up to Syracuse to meet with him for the first time. We go into the shopping plaza pizzeria. He comes in with a pack of cigarettes rolled up on his sleeve, sits down and says to me, you're the age of one of my sons. What am I going to learn from you? And I had to like, in that in that moment say, okay, like, listen, I'm not gonna teach you anything you don't know. You have more life experience than me, but there's some things in your leadership that we gotta change. And I wanna be a partner with you. Let's figure out what that is together and let's try to solve it. And I think, again, it goes back to my model of relational intelligence. I had two hours with him to establish rapport. I could have came in well I'm a PhD and I'm from this great university and I'm gonna tell you what to do. He would have shut me down right away, but I established rapport with him those first two hours. I wanted to know his life story, understanding others. I wanted to, I showed up curious and inquisitive. So Mm -hmm. this was like the first time I applied my relational intelligence model in the work that I do. And we had a great two hour conversation over some pizza and some uh, pepperoni, and it built a foundation for a relationship where I was able to say, hey, when you go on a store visit, don't walk around the store and tell people where they fucked up. Talk to them about what they did well, Talk to them about what, they, what was good about the store. And it was small little behavioral changes that he made like that. People didn't want to see his face when he walked in the store. When we were done working together, people enjoyed having him there because he was acknowledging and praising and giving recognition to people, which wow. he didn't do beforehand.
1: So in essence, you're telling me these, these five things that we're talking about really is the way to deal with narcissistic people as well.
0: I think so. I mean, again, some narcissists are never going to look past their own ego. And so I talk about in the book too, you have to be able to understand how to deal with difficult personalities and difficult people. Um, Relationally intelligent people know how to use these skills to work with narcissists. You're going to come across them. You're going to come across Machiavellians. You're going to come across people in friendships who are high maintenance. Um, Those are personality types that are not going to change, Um, but relationally intelligent people can navigate through those relationships by practicing these five skills.
1: All right. I want to shift over to two things. One cultivating influence, because I I think I agree with you. That is the most powerful one. Right. And there's so many ways we can, we can cultivate that influence.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then I want to shift over into the romantic part of relationships, because I mean, dude, if stuff's broken at home or personally stuff's probably broken everywhere else. Right. So cultivating influence. What's the, if I'm, If you're, let's say you're just talking to me and I'm I I run multiple businesses and you're saying, hey, Tristan, this is where I think (laughs) to start, not knowing much about me, cultivating influence. Here's your opportunity. Where would that be?
0: Yeah. I think first off, you have to come to a framework and think about are your people there for you to do a job or are you there as a leader to help them become the best versions of themselves? I'm working with a leader now in in the uh, media and entertainment industry, and we have these fundamental, philosophical, existential conversations. Are my employees there to do a job, or am I there to help them grow and become better versions of themselves? My response to that is it's both, 50-50. People take jobs to get paychecks and to work, but if you want to create the best performance and raise financial profitability, help your people do what they do the best way, and so Influence, again, we define it as having a positive and meaningful impact on others. And so you really have to think about putting people in culture first, then driving results or getting the sale or trying to meet the short-term goal. Um, there are gonna be, there's gonna have to be strategic investments that you make in people where you may not see a return next week or next month. But if you know, if you can have a longer term plan, say, okay, I'm, I'll give her an example, like we're building this relational intelligence test. I knew I wanted to build a test a year ago, and I had to bring an expert in who could build it, but he wasn't an organizational psychologist. I had to train him to do that. So there were the first six months or so, he wasn't helping bring in revenue into the firm. He wasn't coaching people. I was going out of my way and spending time to mentor and coach and develop him, but he will now be probably one of my greatest consultants because he's learned our approach and he's building a test for us. (laughs) So so there's, again, there was an investment I had to make to cultivate influence, Um, And a lot of leaders want to take the short route, they don't want to have to do that. And again, you may get a short term goal, you may intimidate someone to hit the pavement and get sales for a month. But when you're not teaching them the skills to build long term sales, they're not going to help you to do that.
1: So under the manipulative, right, that that also includes fear, right, leading with, with inflicting fear. Interesting, man, I didn't, I didn't see that part when I was reading it, but now I, I get it. It makes a lot of sense. All right, let's shift over to the romantic part because you had some great examples in the book. And I think, (laughs) look, for for the most part, most people will relate with that one. I I think the deepest, because I also think those are the toughest. Like you mentioned, there's a quote and I loved it. It says, marriages thrive in the long term when both partners commit to the emotion work. And you used emotion work a lot. Yeah. Can can you expand on that, please?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it it goes back to the developing trust piece. But again, vulnerability in your most important romantic relationship with your partner. Vulnerability needs to be the fabric of what makes things work. Um, I look at my relationship with my spouse like we um, we've gone through ups and downs and moments where I've had to be more vulnerable with her. She's had to be more vulnerable with me. But it goes back to this idea um, she's the whole idea of me being authentic really started three, four years ago in our relationship where she started to talk about her life experiences and how she was able to be her true, genuine self and how that impacted relationships in her life. Um, I talk about it in the book. I had an strange relationship with my father for 15 years around what happened when I had my first manic episode. And she had a very frank conversation one day with me. She said, look, my father was murdered when I was five if i had five minutes now i would do whatever i could to speak to him again and you forgave your father why would you not talk to him why would you not have a conversation with him and mm-hmm. it kind of it kind of influenced me because she cultivates influence on me every day when I, <laughs> when I like it, when I, like it, when, I like it when I don't but she got me to say hey you know what that's right uh there's no bitterness it's 15 years later and those were 15 years where i didn't connect with my siblings on that side of the family my cousins i have like 30 people on that side of the family that just because it was a falling out and I never addressed it and never got to build those relationships. And so again, I think, you know, the, the ability to put in the emotion work um, and it's harder for men, I think, than women, but, you know, a relationship, this is what I talk about in the book too, relationship, the word relationship is a verb or the word love is a verb. You have to practice it every day. At the end of the book, I talk about altar calls. Like every day you have to make sacrifices for the people that mean the most to you. And that's where the emotion work really comes in.
1: That was really well said, man. I, I like that it's a verb, and you have to show up every day with it. It's like an action. It's yeah, an action word. Yeah,
0: work. yeah right. I, I
1: like that. So
0: it's not a Disney fairy tale where you just walk up into the sunset getting married. And that maybe the day is fun, but then it's work. You know, it's, it, should, it should be <laughs> enjoyable work. It should be enjoyable work. Um, it's the most important relationship in your life outside of your kids, maybe. And so, like, you you need to you need to really put the time and effort. And there's going to be, I'm a big proponent too, that we go through seasons in life where one partner needs to carry the weight for the other one, um, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with mental health. Like there are times where I'll be depressed and I need support from family or friends and vice versa. So again, the emotional work goes back to vulnerability, goes back to trust. All that's tied into that too.
1: You know, Brené Brown said something a while back, she said, I, I, with my husband she says i've got this thing where i tell him hey i'm only 20 percent today and he's like i got you oh, yeah. i got you yeah. i'm like oh that's
0: my, just... my my wife will tell me when i'm at 20 percent today <laughs> as the day goes on she'll say to me uh i want to talk to you it's 5 p.m oh. yeah so yeah that's funny me. man that's
1: funny when it comes to relationships yeah. do you think that the vulnerability part is looks like showing up with your emotions like, hey, being real with what I fear, yeah. what I desire, or, or what really makes me angry? What, how do we start with this vulnerability?
0: Yeah, I think it starts with the authenticity piece. Um, goes back to the knowing yourself and developing trusting. I mean, I think when you are comfortable in your own skin, you're you're going to show up and be the person who you are. Um, And that's a big part of vulnerability. Then it goes into like, if you get burned, if you trust someone with a vulnerable thing and they burn you on it, that could be scarring. I have another client I'm working with who, you know, he was scarred early on in his career And to this day, there are just there's a a certain level of "Mm, they may be having an ulterior motive that I don't know about. And so there there are times where like people can have a moment where that happens. So there has to be vulnerability, but it has to be re encouraged and reinforced. And you have to have a, a positive affiliation or a positive reinforcement happen, because I think that's one of the big blockers that prevents people from building deep relationships is you have that one story where someone burned you or someone cheated on you or someone mm-hmm. broke it, broke some rule in a business relationship. Um, we've done a lot of research the last couple of months, Tristan, as we're building out this framework for our clients. Um, mm-hmm. We call them relational intelligence derailers or blind spots. Mm-hmm. What are things that can really prevent you from building a strong relationship? And so we got a couple of them. I think the ones that I think are most important. So someone who has a poor ability to manage their emotions. Um, They let anger or rage in a business setting. It's the person who snaps in a meeting or is in a family setting. It's the the father or mother who snaps at their kids and they're trying to get their kids not to do a certain behavior. They're doing the same behavior as they scream and yell at them. Um, So poor management emotions. I think damaging or destroying trust. If you break trust with someone. Um, I talk about it in the book, there's conditional trust, which we mostly see in business settings and in kind of corporate America, and then there's unconditional trust, which you see more in marriages and in deeper relationships outside of work, and you know, conditional trust, you are going to honor your commitments, I'm going to honor mine, but once you get to an unconditional state where there's almost like blind trust, if Mm -hmm. that is damaged, you think about infidelity or something like that, that can destroy trust right away, that can destroy Mm -hmm. trust right away then the other ones that i would say lack of self awareness if you don't have self awareness that's a blocker to building relationships yeah. if you don't have social awareness that's another blocker to building relationships and then we started our conversation today the unconscious biases you know yeah. stereotypes however subtle they do exist prejudices do exist the people who st- struggle with relationships they can't think outside of their own culture they operate with closed mindsets
1: That's so true, man. That's so, and that, that goes into the self-perception, the unconscious bias, which we were talking about. Yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: Makes sense on that. All right. Question for you. Where, what, what type of journal do you, do you journal in? Is it digital? Is it? Oh yeah.
0: So I, so I'm a firm believer in writing things down on paper, setting goals, those things. So I have, I have kind of like my thought journal, prayer journal, whatever you want to say. When I get out of bed in the morning, I make a cup of coffee. I sit down with a journal and I'll just write, I have, to, I have to write one full page, whatever size of the journal. And they're small size journals or not, but I have to write one page of just how I'm thinking or feeling. For me in my own life, with my spirituality, I'll write down a prayer, but it's just writing down how I feel. You know, like this day. I'm, I'm anxious today about these three client meetings. I'm annoyed that my kids did this last night. I'm excited that I get to go on this trip for a new business meeting. Whatever the raw emotions or ever thoughts, mood, et cetera, cognitions in the day, I'll start with that. Um, And so that's one thing that I do every day. I try to do that. Even if I don't have time to make a cup of coffee, I'll just put my thoughts down. And for me, what it's really unlocked is the ability to write without writer's block. If you were to ask me three years ago, do you like writing? I would say, hell no, I don't want to write. It's the last thing I like to do. I started that habit in January, 2020, Tristan. And two months later, I started writing my first book, What Every Leader Needs. I finished that in five months. Um, I had the idea about relational intelligence from there. I sat down January, 2020, I started 2021, I started writing relational intelligence. The book was done by May. So I'm not saying all your readers are gonna journal and become authors, but like, it does give you a freedom of expression to yourself. That's personal, that's for you. No one ever is gonna read your journal. That's you, that's your thing. And so you can write whatever you wanna write and it's a place just to get your, emo- for men too, I think it's really important because we don't have places to get our emotions out. I look at some mm. of my colleagues, you know, where mm. I was taught growing up, you don't show emotion. You don't show emotion. You don't show weakness. You don't so So it's a place where you can be weak or you can be upset or you can be frustrated. And it's not going to damage a relationship. It's not going to hurt someone. And it's, it's for you, for yourself. And it's a habit, just like going to the gym or working out or eating healthy. It's a way to express yourself and take care of your mental, spiritual, and emotional health.
1: Do you ever go back to reading those journals or did you just kind of leave it alone?
0: Well, I will tell you a very funny story. I do from time to time in a journal that i wrote in 2015 i found this a couple months ago i wrote that i was going to write three books and that one of them was going to be a bestseller by 2025 i'm on book number two tell me how good relational intelligence is i don't know what it's going to turn out to be but oh it's but good yeah.
1: man it's so, good so
0: i'll do that like i'll write down goals and stuff and yeah so i'll go back to, i mean i had journals for decades i have a draw here with like 30 of them in there yeah i'll go back sometimes and look Um, I'll set goals in my journal, I'll set annual goals, and then I'll come back and revisit them throughout the year at the end of the year. Um, And I'm a firm believer. I mean, I, I talk about in the book, like I was exposed to Tony Robbins when I was 15. Mm -hmm. And so the power of writing things down and putting ideas on paper, um, you know, I write goals every year, not just think about goals every year, but putting them on paper. Uh, Some of them I put on my wall. So I see them every day. Yeah.
1: I love that, man. All right. Anything that I didn't touch on that you wanted to bring up?
0: I think the biggest thing that I would say for someone reading this book, like, you know, why relational intelligence? Why now? Why should I pick up this book? Um, I think there's really, you know, a couple of different things, I think, because and we touched on this already. Coming out of the pandemic, um, we've lost the art of human face-to-face communication. I hope that this book gives people a blueprint on how to be intentional and authentic about building relationships. Um, then you look at what happened with social justice. Um, diversity, equity, and inclusion is not just a phrase or some catchphrase. It's good. I mean, you, it's horrible what happened in Buffalo two days ago. Yeah. I mean, you talk about racism and racism is in our country. It's not going to go away, but I think great leaders, great employers who run companies, they create inclusive cultures where everyone feels valued and appreciated. And this book talks about that as well. And then I think the biggest thing, you know, we're in the great resignation now where people Particularly millennials and Gen Zs, they have more options than ever before. And so they're leaving companies and they're taking jobs, but they're not just doing it for pay, title and compensation. They're doing it because they have poor relationships with their managers. They say people don't quit jobs, they quit their bosses. So if you're an employer, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're building a business, this book will give you a blueprint on how to build great relations with your people, where they feel that they're contributing, where they feel that they matter, and you'll be able to retain your talent because of it.
1: So good, man. I love that. Well, I'm going to recommend the book. Definitely. So I'll blast that out. I took a ton of notes this yeah. time. And when I read it already <laughs> on yeah. my remarkable too, by the way, that's what I've been writing using.
0: Yeah. The book is going to be out in four weeks. So it's coming out early June. Um, it'll be available everywhere books are sold. So you can follow me on social media. You can follow our firm's page, Bandelli and Associates, or just Adam Bandelli, LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube. So we got a bunch of stuff. Um, and we've been kind of on our marketing campaign since January. So you Google Adam Bandelli relational intelligence, you'll have a bunch of our articles and a bunch of things come up.
1: All right, dude, I just followed you,
0: Doctor Adam Bandelli, on Instagram. Yeah, Instagram. It's official. It's official underscore Bandelli Associates. So official underscore not Bandelli Associates one word. Um, and sure. so that's where we post all our comments. We talk a lot about mental health on there. I'm a big proponent of mental health awareness. So we talk about that on there. We talk about relational intelligence, and we talk about leadership. Those are the three things that I'm known for. I want the firm to be known for, so that's where we spend our time.
1: I got you, official underscore Bandelli Associates. Associates. I got you, man. Thanks awesome. for being on. I no, my pleasure.
0: Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. and thank you for reading the book. I'm glad it was helpful. That's that's my goal. I'm not trying to sell books. I'm trying to help people with an idea that can change their lives. So hopefully, yeah. hopefully, it gave you some thoughts to think through that. A lot, a lot of great thoughts. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.